0: On May 11, 2017, Leonard Leo, executive vice president and board member of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies, delivered a lecture entitled, A Judicial Renaissance, The Trump Administration, and the Future of the Federal Judiciary. His address was delivered as part of the 2017 Acton Lecture Series in the Mark Murray Auditorium of the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with his address is Leonard Leo.
1: I appreciate the kind hospitality of, of all of you here at the Acton Institute, uh, and it's uh, a great privilege for me to take part in your lecture series. Uh, I always enjoy uh, my visits to Michigan, and uh, especially maybe as uh, your status as a new swing state. Um, but I really do enjoy coming here to Grand Rapids, and I've actually never been here at Acton, and this is truly uh, a beautiful place. This is a great place to have uh, uh, meetings here in, here in the city. and uh, uh, it's wonderful to have this oasis uh, in defense of freedom and, and free markets and personal responsibility right here in the Midwest, in the heartland of our country. <clears throat> um, your state, Michigan, is also home to one of America's most uh, influential think tanks. You know, it's, it's not just a Michigan-based uh, organization. I, I work in Washington, D.C., of course. It's the land of think tanks. And I can assure you that, that none of them is more respected than the Acton Institute. Uh, that's a credit, uh, of course, to the good name of Father Sirico uh, and to Chris Morin and to the staff here and to the excellent scholarly work that's being done here and to the enduring objective that you've pursued at Acton from the outset. It doesn't get any more basic than a free and virtuous society grounded in the rights of the individual and humility before God. If the mission of the Federalist Society, my organization, isn't exactly the same, it certainly runs in the same direction. We're lawyers organized to uphold individual liberties, traditional values, and the rule of law in every way we know. We do it every working day, but sometimes happen to be busier than others. The pace really steps up now and then, as, for example, when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, Chris, uh, you were very generous to mention our labors uh, in promoting the uh, confirmation of Justice Neil Gorsuch. And it's true, we at the Federalist Society gave that effort our all. If the aim is a free and virtuous society under the rule of law, what cause in recent years could be as crucial as assuring a worthy successor to Justice Antonin Scalia. In our system, though, the credit ultimately belongs to one person. It belongs to the man who submits the nomination and signs the commission. He had to find the sort of person we would appoint to the open seat. He invited the best advice from judicial conservatives. Then, on taking office, he was true to his word. And for years to come, For any good influence that Justice Gorsuch might have on the court, we are all in the debt of President Donald Trump. The newest justice arrives at what's likely to be a time of transition for the court, and being a constitutionalist to reasons from the plain meaning and structure from the document itself, he is just the right man at just the right time. When we lost Justice Scalia more than a year ago, it looked like we were fated to lose even more. It seemed the court would once and for all become the instrument of the progressive liberal agenda. In one of history's sharper turns, however, that proved not to be so inevitable after all, we constitutionalists are back in the fight. And if my first-hand impressions of President Trump are any guide, I'd even say we have the upper hand. People wonder why our confirmation battles have become so intense, but it's really not such a mystery. The reason lies in the left's understanding of the court itself, which is a world away from that of the framers. Liberals have sought to invest in the Supreme Court something very close to absolute power, and I don't need to tutor the Acton Institute in the consequences of absolute power. But I might offer something of a corollary that helps explain the all or nothing and sometimes quite ruthless tactics that we see on the left every time a Republican president nominates a justice. Unlimited court power means unlimited confirmation strife. For generations, when it has suited their purposes, progressives have basically held that the Constitution means whatever five or more members of the court say it means. In practice, this has given us two trends in jurisprudence, neither of which bears any resemblance to how the framers viewed our Constitution or our third unelected branch of government. We see the first trend in the creation of rights found nowhere in the text or structure of the Constitution. To note some examples, almost at random, Griswold versus Connecticut brought us a right to privacy, so general and vague, that its application is purely subjective. That in turn led to Roe v. Wade and a long line of cases affirming a right to abortion with ever narrowing exceptions for reasonable restrictions and regulations. In similar fashion, Obergefell v. Hodges announced a right to same-sex marriage. Miller v. California limited the authority of states to restrain production and distribution of obscene material. Everson versus Board of Education, and many follow-on decisions, created a sort of right to protection from religious influence in the public square. Mapp versus Ohio granted criminal defendants a right to the exclusion of so-called tainted evidence at trial, often setting the guilty free in a manner the authors of the Fourth Amendment would have termed a gross miscarriage of justice. Consistent constitutional reasoning is not what ties these landmark opinions together. On the contrary, it's their excess of nuance. The common features are vagueness, malleability, and self-aware pretenses to legal rigor. Almost invariably, we're invited to join the majority opinion in some labored journey of the mind. Striking delicate balances, applying multi-pronged tests, discerning ever-evolving standards. Though it's always cast in the language of independent truth-seeking, somehow we always end up in the same place. The imperial court, a court where any majority of five, exercising will instead of judgment, can decide essentially whatever they please. If the goal were to avoid the whole messy business of free and open debate, among the people and our elected representatives, this would be how to do it. The only problem is such an exercise of power by nine mortals given lifetime tenure is unjust and deeply, dangerously undemocratic. That's one trend in jurisprudence. The second is a tendency to overlook what is plainly evident in the Constitution. When you're finding things that aren't there, It's no surprise when you miss things that are there. This is most pronounced in areas where the court is called upon to enforce what I call the structural constitution. The separation of powers, limited enumerated powers under Article I, federalism, and so forth. Failure to enforce these structural limits has brought us a nearly unlimited administrative state, to which Congress has wrongly granted a mix of legislative and judicial as well as executive powers. The specifically listed legislative powers are so broadly construed that exclusive enumeration of them becomes almost meaningless. Permissive constructions of the power to spend or to provide for the general uh, welfare or to regulate interstate commerce have all kinds of practical consequences they allow Congress to venture into areas that were intended to be left to the states or else free of government intervention altogether. When the court doesn't enforce even the most obvious constitutional provision, the abuses of power quickly add up. In this way, Grutter v. Bollinger brought us race-based quotas that violate equal protection under the law. The campaign finance cases Buckley versus Vallejo and McConnell versus FEC permit Congress to effectively restrict core political speech without the most compelling justification. Kilo versus City of New London essentially did away with the public use requirement when government employs one of its bluntest powers of all, the taking of private property. We speak often of the activist court inserting itself where it doesn't belong. But in these cases, the problem is the passive court, absent where it does belong. Too often, missing from the picture is what the framers envisioned, the dutiful court, exercising only its rightful and essential powers and making certain that the other branches do the same. Of course, judicial lawlessness is a complicated problem, and there's no shortage of complex explanations. Many writers on the subject lay the blame on Congress for passing laws so vague as to leave judges no choice but to act and think as legislators. Justice Scalia actually raised this point in one of his dissenting opinions. He observed, and I quote, fuzzy, leave the details to be sorted out by the court's legislation is attractive to the congressman who wants credit for addressing a national problem but does not have the time, or perhaps the votes, to grapple with the nitty-gritty. Others see judicial activism as an unavoidable result of the welfare and regulatory state. They cite decisions of the Warren and Burger Courts, which continually define constitutional standards for new federal programs in education, housing, and other areas. It has become common to see law review articles that examine court decisions from this angle, weighing social, economic, and political factors, and often discarding traditional legal analysis altogether. Chief Justice Earl Warren is said to have asked himself in scrutinizing a law, is it right, is it fair, rather than simply, is it constitutional? In some quarters, this is considered standard standard practice and entirely praiseworthy. Political scientists offer a third explanation. They point to shifts in the electoral cycle and national politics. For example, during transitional periods when power changes hands in elected branches, the Supreme Court tends to act in a counter-majoritarian way. Now, in each of these attempts to account for the abuse of judicial power, doubtless there's a bit of truth. But surely it's not one of those problems that lends itself to a simpler causal explanation. It's the one I suspect Lord Acton would settle on and all the framers too. As usual with abuses of power, the reason is a desire for power. Long stretches of the Federalist Papers are meditations on just that subject. Lest anyone forget how mindful the author- authors of the Constitution were about power and its temptations, Let me turn over the floor to James Madison for a few moments. This quote is from Federalist number 51. The great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others. The provision for defense must in this as in all of the cases be made commensurate to the danger of the attack. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the government, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is, no doubt, the primary control on the government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. We see this commentary play out in how the framers envisioned and defined and devised judicial power. Judicial review ensures that the structural limits on governmental authority will be policed and enforced by the courts. At the same time, though, The framers expected the judiciary to exercise very limited powers, leaving the heavy lifting of policy development to the political branches. The best explanation here, again worth quoting at length, comes from Alexander Hamilton in The Federalist Number 78, where he says, "...the judiciary has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or the wealth of the society, and can take no active resolution whatever." It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. This simple view of the matter, Hamilton continues, suggests several important consequences. It proves incontestably that the judiciary is beyond comparison the weakest of the three departments of power, that it can never attack with success either of the other two, and that all possible care is requisite to enable it to defend itself against their attacks. It equally proves that though individual oppression may now and then proceed from the courts of justice, the general liberty of the people can never be endangered from that quarter. I mean, so long as the judiciary remains truly distinct from both the legislature and the executive. For I agree that there is no liberty if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers. A worldly man, like all his peers in Philadelphia, Hamilton surely knew that abuses of judicial power could occur, and would occur. But I'm quite certain of this. He could never have imagined a confirmation hearing in which nominees to our highest court were opposed or declared unfit precisely because they agreed with Hamilton, Madison, and every other framer as to the clear limits of judicial power. The real trouble began when judicial abuses came dressed up as constitutional doctrine. A prime suspect in all of this is the, real, the, the legal realist school of the 20th century. It gave us a sociological conception of law concerned mostly with its social effects of law and courts. Realism meant viewing the law as a means to an end, a tool in the expert hands of social engineers. And who better to do the engineering than a judge who can set policy by decree? The short of it is this, unless the starting premise is that law has determinate meaning, the outcome will always be unpredictable and only coincidentally related to the designs of the Constitution. You can give such legal theories any impressive-sounding name you want, but here's the reality. The only name that's really going to matter is the name of the judge who decides the case. And benevolent motivation is no safeguard against pure whim. Eventually, it becomes a matter in the best instance of well-intentioned policymaking and in the worst instance of what Justice Byron White memorably termed acts of raw judicial power. The legal realism school only grew more sure of itself over the years and it fell to serious thinkers like Antonin Scalia and Robert Bork to start puncturing the balloon. We can thank them for setting legal thinking in our time back on the firm ground of originalism and textualism. By sheer force of argument they and others like them became a commanding presence in the debate. From there was a short step to originalist judges on the federal bench appointed by President Reagan and both Presidents Bush. Not every great nominee made it through all the way and we remember the treatment of Judge Bork as the progressive left at its most ruthless. But some exemplary justices have joined the court. Better still and turning to the present moment, we can be hopeful that others will follow. For constitutionalists, our improbable 45th president is turning out to be to borrow a phrase from his predecessor, the change we've been waiting for. (laughs) He's certainly a man with an eye for opportunity, and he sees the chance history has given him to change the American judiciary for the better. We're now looking at the possibility of as many as three Supreme Court vacancies and more than 200 lower court seats to fill just in these next few years. A lot rides on the caliber of men and women who get the call. If the experience, judgment, and character of the first to receive that call are the standard in every instance, only good things will follow for judicial independence, democratic values, and the rule of law. Does Donald Trump see the full picture of judicial lawlessness and how it can be corrected? From my dealings with him, I'm left with no doubt that he does. Early on, as a candidate and then as president-elect, President Trump said he wanted Supreme Court justices who would interpret the Constitution, quote, the way the framers meant it to be. He wanted justices who were, in his words, quote, not weak. He admires toughness in people, resiliency, the simple ability to hold up under pressure and he expects those qualities in judges, too. In other words, men and women who are not swayed by political or social fashions. Judges who exercise neither force nor will, but merely judgment. Here's how the President put it at the swearing-in of Justice Gorsuch, and I quote, Over the past two months, the American people have gotten to know, respect, and truly admire our newest member of the United States Supreme Court. In Justice Gorsuch, they see a man of great and unquestioned integrity. They see a man of unmatched qualifications. And most of all, and most importantly, they see a man who is deeply faithful to the Constitution of the United States. He will decide cases not based on his personal preferences but based on a fair and objective reading of the law. That is a concise job description that covers a lot of ground. Meet all the standards those words imply, and you will fill the role in every circumstance. When you think about it, after all, there's nothing terribly complicated about the virtues in a great judge, because they perfectly match with the cardinal virtues. Prudence. St. Thomas Aquinas describes this as, quote, wisdom concerning human affairs, and also as having right reason with respect to action. We need two types of knowledge when surveying any situation, knowledge of the moral principles guiding human nature and an understanding of the circumstances at hand. It's that combination that gives us sound judgment. Justice. Father John Hardin calls it the, quote, constant and permanent determination to give everyone his or her rightful due. It's the virtue that blinds us to anything and everything except equality before the law. Temperance, the strength of character to stand above the seductions of power, status, and acclaim. No one ever given a robe and gavel is unfamiliar with these temptations, and when a justice of the court gives into them, it's not a very inspiring sight. Fortitude, the courage to stand firm in our convictions and our duty against all pressure and adversity. If a justice of the Supreme Court cannot be counted on to show complete fidelity to the Constitution and the laws of our country, then how can we expect that of anyone in government? One final thought about these virtues. They define the ideal, and therefore no one is ever going to be a perfect exemplar of them. On the other hand, we Americans, above all, know how close to the mark an inspired collection of people once came, but for them, we would not today have one of the greatest works of human wisdom, the Constitution of the United States. It has never been and never will be too much to ask that justices of our highest court act in honorable adherence to the supreme law of the land, and they have enduring examples to follow, in justices whose reputations still command respect and always will. Faithfulness is always at a premium, and never more than today than in the President's search for men and women who will take up and live up to that obligation. The good news is that he has already found one of them and a few others this week, and the great news is that more are on the way. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Leonard. Uh, We have about 20 minutes for uh, questions, so if you have a question, raise your hand, and Patrick and I will be able to get right over here. Uh, In your interactions with uh, uh, quote-unquote Christian law schools here in the United States, to what degree would you say that they are lined up behind the thoughts that you've presented today, and to what degree would they Throw you out on your ear.
1: Uh, it's a mixed bag. Uh, I think that uh, you know there are a number of Christian law schools that uh, strive for those principles in the judicial enterprise. Um, uh, there are a number that don't. Uh, Oh, in terms of the proportion of them? There are probably more that don't than do. Uh, But I will say this, uh, the, the Christian law schools that are really honing to what I've discussed, many of them have fabulous faculties that are providing enormous guidance and counsel to our country beyond the classroom. Uh, and many of those schools are churning out absolutely extraordinary people. Um, so even though there may be fewer Christian law schools that it, adhere to these principles than there are others, I think in the aggregate those that smaller collection of schools is actually having greater impact in the long term right now. Hopefully it stays that way.
0: Um, for our own uh, Justice Joan Larson, who was just nominated to the circuit court and uh, maybe some others in general, do you uh, think that Democratic senators will start to use, uh, like, blue slips to start to really obstruct uh, these nominations?
1: Will Democrats use blue slips to obstruct nominations? They'll use anything to obstruct nominations. Uh, they'll cut the power off in the building if they need to to stop a hearing. Um, Yes, and they've already indicated that that is precisely what they're going to do. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a blue slip is, why why would you? Um, it's this arcane device that the Senate has. The blue slip is basically this device that can be used to, to hold up a, a nominee. So whenever the president nominates someone to uh, a judgeship, uh, a senator... Uh, either tenders the blue slip, hands it in, or he withholds it. If he withholds it, the question becomes, does the nominee move forward in the Senate? Does he get a hearing? Is he voted on a committee? Is he voted on on the floor? Democrats uh, have a fairly narrow, myopic view of the history of the blue slip. They think that the blue slip is akin to holy writ, so that if they basically refuse to tender a blue slip, the nominee is stopped in his or her tracks forevermore. Now, that was the practice under their guy, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy, during the George W. Bush administration. But unfortunately, several years of Patrick Leahy activity does not a history make. And if you look at the broader history, Chairman Ted Kennedy, uh, Chairman Joe Biden, Chairman Orrin Hatch, Chairman Arlen Specter, you will find that the blue slip has never been wholly red. Through most of its history, the blue slip has been a device to make sure that senators are being consulted. And there are certain presumptions that would prevent a nominee from going forward. So, for example, if a sen- senator was totally blackballed and not consulted, that blue slip would probably be respected. If there's something seriously wrong with a judicial nominee, an ethical or integrity issue that is clear within the home state of the senator, that, that's something that might uh, cause the blue slip to have force and effect. But a senator's disagreement with the judicial philosophy and ideology of a president's nominees, no, that's not a good grounds for uh, a, giving a blue-slip force in effect. That was an issue that was decided a long time ago in November. We had this thing called an election. And the American people decided they wanted a president who was going to appoint these kinds of people. And make no mistake, that issue was squarely before the American people in that election more than any other in recent history. So the blue slip should not be a tool for thwarting the will of the people, as expressed through that election, or for creating what I would call a silent filibuster, which, by the way, we've also done away with. Uh, and so it is is—it uh, is a, is a practice that has certain place in the Senate, but needs to be cabined. And that is an issue that is right on the front burner uh, at present, and Chairman Grassley of the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to have to make a decision about uh, how he will um, view blue slips very, very soon.
0: Is there any uh, truth to the rumors that uh, Justice Kennedy is going to retire this coming summer?
1: If you find out, could you let me know? (laughs) Will do. Um, Nobody knows. Uh, You know what? He may not even know. Uh, Right now, Justice Kennedy and his colleagues are in the midst of the busiest time of the year. Uh, May and June is the silly season up at the court when they have to churn out all their opinions and write their dissents and go back and forth. It's where the most mischief tends to take place. So my suspicion is that um, Justice Kennedy's thinking about just getting the term done and and leaving it at that. I've never been a big fan of prognosticating about whether someone's going to, uh, going to retire or not, and I know there are people who have all sorts of actuarial tables, um, you know, they try to pick up DNA from places the justices have touched to see whether or not there's anything there that might reveal. I mean, there's all sorts of things. Um, tarot card reading. There's all sorts of stuff that I'm sure happens to figure out whether or not a justice is going to retire or die. I don't like to get into that discussion, but the one thing I've told... Um, Um, at least two presidents, is you always have to be ready, okay? So the fact of the matter is, from day one after you're elected, you should be thinking very carefully about, one, what kind of a justice you want, and two, start thinking really seriously about what people ought to be on your short list. Now, President Trump did this in a way that none other ever did. He put a short list out not so short, a short list. And he put it out and he told everybody, these were the people I'm gonna pick from. Um, and so, you know, uh, you're, always, you're always preparing, you're always vetting prospective nominees, you're even sometimes having people come into the White House just to see what they're like, uh, and you're doing that from day one. So really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, right, all that much whether he retires or not. The White House, if it's doing its job, is ready at all times, and you know Justice Scalia's passing you know is a good example for why you have to be ready at all times, right? I mean, you know who knew and uh, and uh, there you have it you know uh, you, you have to be prepared
0: but what do you uh, think the future will bring us in terms of abuse of a presidential power
1: on on, on the war activity without going around congress do, do you See any uh, hope that we'll see some positive things in the next 10 years on that? Abuse of presidential power in the context of war, right? Is that the question? Okay, well first of all, I may have a disagreement with you on what that means. So I have a very narrow view of what the power, of Congress's power to declare war means. Because if you go back to the 18th century and the 17th century and ascertain what a declaration of war was, you could be engaged in armed hostilities. Uh, uh, in fact, quite vigorous armed hostilities and not have a declaration of war by the head of state. A declaration of war carried with it uh, very, very specific prerogatives uh, and actions. There were certain things with a declaration of war you could do to the other side um, or that you could, uh, you could begin to engage in that you couldn't do in the absence of a declaration of war. And I forget what those are now, but there are three or four of them Uh, So, I I actually think Congress's power to declare war, uh, while certainly important, isn't definitionally the only thing you look to uh, uh, in terms of figuring out whether or not uh, the United States should engage in various forms of armed conflict. Having said all of that, and my view on this is probably quite a minority view, uh, but I think it's backed up by the original meaning of the the, uh, power to declare war. The concept of a declaration of war at the, at, at the 18th century. Um, there's no question in my mind the current administration has a team of lawyers who are quite dedicated to enforcing uh, enforcing limits on executive power. Uh, we've just come off of an administration that didn't know there were limits on executive power. Um, uh, the president was never apparently informed of it. Um, uh, there are actually. Um, uh, and so, you know, we, we, have a, we have people in the White House and in the Justice Department who actually have some understanding of this and you who know, have been in the business of advising prior administrations on the scope of executive authority. And so I'm, I'm not particularly troubled by uh, uh, where this administration will be headed in terms of uh, adherence to limits on the power of the executive. Um, now, look, I mean, you know, executives have broad power in our constitutional system and it has to be used wisely. Um, uh, But there are limits, and I think that those will be respected and enforced over time.
0: Could could you outline for us what uh, your personal involvement and the involvement of the federal society uh, has been in uh, giving guidance to the president in choosing uh, new nominees for the courts?
1: Sure. Look, as an institution, the Federalist Society is not this monolithic central planner that sits in some conference room and puts together lists and you know picks up the president and says, "We're the Federalist Society and here's our list of you know you know nine people who ought to be here or there that's That's not how it works. There are a number of people involved in the organization uh, who have uh, uh, who have taken time to um, uh, to serve as Informal or more formal advisors to the President and this administration going all the way back to the campaign, uh, I can only speak for my own part, uh, you know, as some of you may have read in, in various places during the campaign. I was asked um, to visit with the President and to and to talk with him about um, the issue of judicial selection and the Supreme Court in particular. I accepted that invitation we had a very productive conversation. what led from there was the development of this list that. Many of you have probably seen of, of 21 twenty one, twenty one prospects for the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and you know uh, during the transition period and from there on outward uh, the relationship and dialogue has continued. Uh, I I have um, uh, I've had a very productive uh, you know dialogue with the president himself as well as with many of his uh, other advisors about judicial selection, both at the high court and at the lower courts. Um, but you know, it's a dynamic process. It's not one person, it's a large team of people inside the White House and inside the Justice Department, and it's clusters of people outside the White House and the Justice Department. Um, and that's the case with every administration. Every administration I've ever known, going all the way back, has always had people uh, you know, informally uh, or more specifically advising them on judicial selection. The only difference between the Trump administration and previous administrations is this this administration has made known who it's talking to. Uh, And in this one instance, the press apparently finds that form of transparency uh, offensive and and objectionable. Um, So, yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, a while ago when I felt my blood pressure was riding a little bit low, I would turn on the Diane Reem show in about ten minutes. Always late, works, doesn't it? I would end up throwing <laughs> something at the radio. Anyway, they um, should
1: have it running during heart surgery. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, shortly after the election, she had a panel of experts on there, uh, crying in their beer. Uh, who was on there? I don't know who it was, oh. but anyway, panel of experts, and they were bemoaning the fact, the fact that if Donald Trump is in for eight years, the court system will be totally unrecognizable. Now, in your opinion. Is there a snowball's chance that the Ninth Court of Appeals is going to change in four or or eight years?
1: I think uh, news of the left's death on the federal judiciary is probably greatly exaggerated on the Diane Rehm show. Um, uh, I I would love to see the courts unrecognizable, (laughs) um, but I don't think that's that's something that's going to happen in the future. Look, uh, you know, uh, it took... It took the better part of 50, 60 years to get to where we are today. Uh, And it's going to take a long time to get the courts and the Supreme Court back to where we would want them to be as a country premised on limited constitutional government. Uh, you know right now uh, there are courts of appeals like the one you mentioned, the Ninth Circuit which handles California and some of the western states, the Second Circuit and the first Circuit which handle the New England states and New York and the mid atlantic region um, uh, you know the Fourth Circuit which handles parts of the South, not the deep south uh, there are a number of circuits there there are out of the uh, out of the thirteen circuits there are probably nine that are, um, that are uh, where a majority embraces the opposite view that I've presented. And it's gonna take time to move that. Now, having said that, we are at this unique point in history. I mean, the president, this president is going to have an unprecedented number of vacancies to fill. He already does, he's got 134 right now. My prediction is he'll probably get 60 to 70 more Court of Appeals vacancies you're talking about a very, very large uh, swath of people who are going to be cycling out and new people cycling in. You could see as much as a third uh, of the Court of Appeals in this country changing changing hands, uh, at least that much with the district courts. That's serious stuff. So it won't be unrecognizable, um, but people who believe in limited constitutional government are actually going to have a fighting chance. And... Um, might actually start winning again. Um so that's that's a serious change.
0: Piggy backing off that, uh off his question, many have speculated that the Supreme Court is, is really no longer important because of how liberal uh our Federal Circuit Court, uh, lower courts have have been rolling from the second, the most conservative circuit all the way to the ninth. Um what's your view on how quickly we can change that?
1: Uh with some of the circuits things will move faster. So for example, circuits like the uh the eleventh, uh, the eighth, the seventh, um those are circuits where uh the, the delta is is smaller, a couple votes. Ninth, second, third, first, fourth, maybe a couple of others, DC. It's gonna take longer. Uh, you know, it could take two terms to start to really see swing. Um, but but that's okay. And and, and let me explain why in, in, in one respect. One of the ways the US Supreme Court decides what cases to take on certiorari, area, obviously there's the all important question of whether there's a split in the circuits and that's why you need some circuits that are, you know, on the right side philosophically. But also, you know, justices look very carefully at who dissents in in a case below. Uh and so for example, even though the DC circuit right now is is clearly on the left side of the spectrum, there are several judges on that court who are serious intellectuals, uh and and who are real Careful in their work, and truly brilliant, Brett Kavanaugh, Lawrence Silverman, Ray Randolph, Doug Ginsburg, a couple of others. so when they dissent in a case, that gets the justice's attention and what you've what we've been noticing is a lot of those d c circuit cases that go bad right, end up in the court, and a number of them end up getting reversed so even though you might not be able to take control of a circuit, having three or four really good, grounded jurists can help to flag cases for the high court. Now, they still have to meet the other cert-worthy criteria, like conflict in the circuit and so forth, but, but it really helps. And so, you know, even though you might not control a circuit, you're going to win more cases just by dint of the way the wheel works in each circuit and the random composition of panels. And then secondly, you'll have dissents, which flag issues for the high court. Whoa, the last question. Uh, I, I have a question to shift to international religious liberty. You know, Christians around the world are persecuted, Muslims fighting different sects within Muslims. If the United Nations or some august body could uh, get the agreement that we're going to have religious liberty, that you're allowed and you can't persecute based on religion, and got the re- it seems like so many of the, the fights <laughs> around the world, if they really got behind it could be limited. So from your experience, the United Nations, is there any way to take a cause of religious liberty uh, uh, global-wide? Well, this is an area where I think the United States has to lead. Uh, I don't think that the cause for international religious freedom is going to to advance unless the U.S. makes it uh, a primary component of its national security and public diplomacy agendas. Um we have three problems with international religious freedom one is state sponsored persecution right countries like Iran and saudi arabia which 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 just uh which just have in their laws this form of discrimination and persecution secondly is 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 uh exportation of extremist ideology. We see that in countries like Pakistan that are exporting all sorts of terribly hateful, radically Islamist stuff to Northern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, destroying countries like Sudan and Nigeria. And then finally, we see the problem in in the form of impunity. Um, in other words, uh, situations where the state might not be um, persecuting someone or, or, or jailing them or killing them in the dark of night, but private citizens are coming out and dragging people into the public square and stoning them to death. Um, So you have those problems. You have the subtle discrimination which takes place by identifying people based on religious affiliation and then depriving them of public services or jobs. And then you have the broader problem, thanks to President Obama, of a world where now freedom of worship is really what countries say they have, not freedom of religion. President Obama started that with his speech in Cairo, where he talked about freedom of worship. Every Islamic state Every dictatorial regime has freedom of worship. You can go in your home and draw down the shades and pray. but is that really what we want? Is that freedom of religion? No, that's not freedom of religion. That's not what the u n Declaration of Human Rights anticipates. That's certainly not what our constitutional system anticipates, which is you know has been borrowed uh, time and again uh, um, you know throughout the world. So the United States has to exercise leadership, and that means that it has to start naming and shaming countries. It needs to start uh, uh, penalizing countries uh, in its various bilateral uh, negotiations and agreements when a country oppresses religion. Uh, and it needs to start calling um, the UN and other multilateral bodies to the, to the carpet uh, when they don't do the right thing. Uh, and that means a regime of sanctions, uh, soft power in some instance. Uh, uh, and, and really just you know uh, exercising the bully pulpit and exposing what's going on. If that happens, the follow-on to that will be a more robust civil society here in the United States that also tries to protect religious freedom abroad. We had that in the 70s and in the 80s with the Soviet Jewry Movement, which was largely perpetuated in this country by, by churches. We had it with uh, Sudan and Darfur. Um, we see less of that today. And the reason we see less of it today is because the United States has has, has not has crossed it off of its foreign policy and national security agenda. If you want stability and you want security and you want economic prosperity in this country and around the world, you need the freedom of religion. Of course, you need the freedom of religion because it defines the dignity and worth of every human person, and that's the reason for defending it. But there are practical reasons for the United States to want to be involved in this game as well.
0: I cannot think of a better way to end this wonderful lecture. Thank you, Leonard. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society, characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at www.acton.org.